the main ingredient With your host David Nafeld, I am joined as always by my brother from another mother, Manny J. Hello there, beautiful world. Welcome back. What a week it has been, to say the least. Indeed. So last week we uh, put out our first part of two parts of the GP episodes of the main ingredient with Gwyneth Paltrow. I mean. The Gwyneth Paltrow. The Gwyneth Paltrow. I mean, at this point, she only needs one name, though, right? Absolutely. Because she's a straight-up G. She's a G. She's a GP. Yeah, she is a GP. <laughs> so, I mean, the last week's episode, uh, which was part one, has received insane feedback. We've just been... Um, really blown away with the response. Yeah, so I'm stoked that people have been so... Um, you know, excited by it and just excited by the things that were talked about. And, you know, we ended up breaking this up into two different parts because, you know, the conversations were had kind of months apart and we wanted to kind of have a little bit more context around it. So it made more sense to kind of break them up like this. Um, this next episode, we're really excited by because, you know, we touch base on kind of what's been going on with the you know, uh, with COVID and the kind of the 12 steps of grief, I guess you would call it the 12 <laughs> months of grief. Yeah, basically. And you know how mindsets change throughout that time. We also get into, um, you know, embracing the, your age. Right? Yes. And I think that's a big thing that goop and GP kind of spend a lot of time promoting is the idea of being comfortable with who you are, embracing your age, embracing the, um, the newness, the shedding, you know, your, your skin and kind of stepping into this new light. And I think it's very embracing, um, of, you know, just whoever you are, not, you don't, you don't have to be, um, I guess, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't fear mourning. it, right? You shouldn't fear it, like getting old. Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a juice seeing this little salt and peppers coming through my hair. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. The thing is, uh, you know, I think it's dope that she's creating this empowerment around just being who you are and embracing that. Also, in the same light, she has been. She and Goop have, since their inception, have been really about empowering women right and the idea of women taking ownership of themselves over their bodies who they are we get into a lot of that in the pod um i'm very excited that we got to talk about restaurants because the way that she and i got to know each other is in restaurants and um i've always known since before i even knew her that she's been a massive fan of restaurants She's a diner. She goes out 
She loves to support, especially independent chefs. Mm -hmm. And we talk about my um, part in the IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition. We talk about the Restaurant Relief Act, which our group has been working really, really hard on getting passed. And, you know, she talks about why restaurants are important to communities. So, um, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm very grateful for the fact that she spent so much time with us and that, you know, we've ended up kind of breaking these up into two different um, episodes. And I think without further ado, we're going to kind of just jump straight into part two of the main ingredient with Gwyneth Paltrow. So let's get into it. Take me away. The main ingredient. This is the main ingredient. The main ingredient. The way I want to start today is, you know, the last time we spoke was roughly around two months ago. And I think each month everybody is just more surprised month by month that we're still mm -hmm. in this thing, right? And mm -hmm. I think that mm -hmm. each month it's like going through a different stage of grief. And yeah. do you find yourself to be in any different of a headspace today than you were two months ago? I think I've, you know, so the first good chunk of the quarantine, I was in Los Angeles. And then I was lucky enough to go to our house on Long Island, where I talked to you from. And it was like a different world because it's much more rural. It's way out on the end of the island. And you know, it's not like a restaurant and shops thing very much. And so I was kind of in nature and swimming in the ocean. And it really gave me this sort of false sense of a bubble, which I think I, I kind of needed, you know, I feel like we all needed a little bit of a break from the fear, the monotony of work from home, all this kind of stuff. And I, then when I came back to California, you know, it's like, I had a little bit of PTSD around, I don't know. It was the routine of, you know, you wake up, you go to the kitchen table, you work, you cook food for your kids, you try to do the, the dinner plan. You know, when there was, it was so, it was just crazy. And I, I thought, God, am I going to be, when I go back to California, I'm going to be back in that thing again, where it felt like the twilight zone. But actually I think I feel like it's softened up a bit. And I think that we're lucky in the sense that even though this thing is not abating and it's getting worse, I think we've all learned what we need to do to survive it. Like we're so adaptable as human beings and um, I don't mean physically survive it because that's a whole other story, but I mean mentally survive being in quarantine again, if it happens or varying degrees of lockdown and really wearing masks and really committing to being safe and, um, and really committing to the agility of not knowing what is going to happen and when it's going to be over and what it means. And, you know, just trying to support my kids who are freshmen and juniors now in high school and doing it from their bedrooms. It's, it's very surreal. So I think, flexibility, agility, you know, keep, I, I just keep trying to soften into the unknown and leave it at that. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Do you find yourself um, still qualifying when people ask you how you're doing? Yes, because first of all, there's kind of the empirical thing where 
you know, you, you kind of don't know how you're doing because you're, <laughs> you know, like your office is closed. You're the, like the people, my team, you know, there's all this kind of thing that impacts how you're doing. You know, people are worried. People are worried about economics. People are worried about where they're going to be, it, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think when you, when you work with a big team, like that stuff weighs on me heavily. Also my kids, as I mentioned, it's like, there's this heaviness, this weight of trying to, to figure out how to do it. And so you're like, you know, and then you're worried about all of the vulnerable people who are still very much at risk for having, you know, serious repercussions from COVID. And then you also feel weird when you have these amazing days of like these long, dinners with your teenagers because you're all kind of home and, you know, you're cooking together and you're chatting and there's this amazing, like, wonderful warmth and closeness. And then you feel like, is this okay that we're like actually finding all of these silver linings out of this? And I don't know. It's just all confusing. Yeah, I totally get that. Um, I wanted to take this time to kind of go into a topic that I've seen that you're you seem to be posting a lot about this, and I feel like Goop is posting a lot about this in in the essence of embracing age, you know, mm-hmm. and and as your age changes, to embrace it and to you know to to kind of shed the skin of yesterday's season and you know and embrace what today is. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, I know I don't want to get too heady here, but you know, it's the idea of the cherry blossom, right? The cherry blossom is this short period of time and it's meant mm-hmm. to be um, celebrated, right? For its beauty and and for its extraordinary colors and all of that. And But it's fleeting and it's very short. And what the Japanese believe is that at its end, it's time to celebrate the fact that it's going to bear fruit, not to um, in some way... Uh, grieve the end of the beauty, right? Like you're you're mm-hmm. celebrating it's it's you know when it's when it's over. And I think that from my perspective, watching you, you have made a big point to celebrate your new your new chapters. Yeah. Can you talk about why that's important, specifically for you know for females, but then also just in general, why it's important that people embrace their new age and, and, and as, as they get older? Well, because I think, you know, there's something inherently unhealthy about clinging to this idea or any ideal of what you're supposed to be or look like. And the hardest thing about life is really learning how to get very close to who you actually are, irrespective of what other people want you to be or what you expect of yourself, like some fictitious benchmark that you set for yourself. So, and it's really hard work to get really, really close to yourself in that way. And I think when we deny aging, we, or, or any phase of life, we're denying ourselves of that opportunity to really be close to ourselves and to fully like there's so many beautiful gifts that come with every stage of life and and I think in a way I feel like it's my responsibility to model that you know as a public person that women at all ages are beautiful and worth 
something and that we don't have to be trying to twist ourselves into some other you know idea of what we're supposed to be and like older women are amazing and and sexy and wise and cool and it's like I think we should embrace that and you know that's why when I was got on the other side of 45 and I thought you know this whole menopause thing really needs to be rebranded I mean I wasn't going into menopause yet I'm still not but I feel like there's so much silence around that time of life and shame around that time of life and why it's it's a very natural passage rite of passage and I, I really think that um, women should be more vocal about what they're going through and you know I've always been a person that's talked about uh, and explored and questioned every single phase of my life and in order to try to optimize it for myself and and the same the same is you know goes for being older and you know I mean I, I turn 48 I'm gonna be 50 in two years, which is so surreal to me. I mean, I can't get my head around that one, but I just wanna be my fullest self as opposed to lament the fact that I'm not, you know, 28, which was terrible. Yeah, I, that's, that's funny that you say that because, you know, you look back at those ages that people are, you know, you know, glorifying and you think back to how hard it was and how, you know, challenging it was and the anxiety you went through and the, you know, uh, discomforts you went through, you know, and, and, you know, it really is true that, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Um, so there are people that inherently wear their age better in the sense of, Mm -hmm. you know, there's an embracing of it and it's, they, they just, you know, in in Italian, there's a term. It's called sprezzatura. Are you familiar with that term? No. So sprezzatura is basically the act. Uh, it's not even an act. It's like being perfect without trying. So imagine <laughs> it's, 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 and it's super Italian. It's like you went into your closet and you found like three things that were totally like, you've had them for forever and you put them on and there's just this like pocket square and there's like just a stitched part in a certain area and there's like a wear to it and your hair is just a certain way. And it really looks like you have put zero effort into it whatsoever, but you could literally just walk onto a fashion stage because it's just so, it's so right. It just looks so good. And it's this comfort of style and this knowing of yourself and knowing what looks good on you and not trying to be anything else. What do you think the key is to wearing your age well and to finding out who you are in this new world, new life, and kind of letting go of kind of past, you know, past styles or past efforts or, uh, you know, w- what is the secret to that? Do you, do you have a sense of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think that to get there is a lifelong process. I think you, my, my effort has been to approach every chapter of my life with a kind of openness, um, and an accountability. Like, I don't think when you see, well, in my experience, anyway, I'll just say the more work that I've done to understand where all my internal friction points are, and how to forgive myself for 
these judgments that I was holding against myself all my life, you know, that we get from these, this kind of like misinformation we get about ourselves from society or our parents or teachers or whatever. Um, and we're so porous as children and we, we, we are so sensitive and we adapt around these things and we, we learn these lessons about who we are and a lot of them aren't true. And so a lot of life becomes about unpacking those things and recharacterizing them for ourselves. And I think that our mission is to go back through, you know, it's like you take an inventory of the things that stick with you and kind of stick in your craw, the things that um, like you, if you're overly reactive or triggered by something like why, what is that? Have the guts to sit there and explore it and have the guts to sit there and feel the bad feelings when they come up because they reveal to you the possibility of where you can start healing stuff. So I've always been really passionate about that and, and try to teach my children that, you know, I, in this, in, in America, we're not good at sitting with pain we anesthetize it. We distract ourselves. We get on our phone. We, we drink. Um, but pain is a real, is a teacher. And we can, if we listen to that stuff, then we can start to not be afraid of it and take it apart. And, and then once we kind of understand those things and those blueprints and those misunderstandings, and once you really start to forgive yourself, and understand like, this is me, this is who I am. I did the best that I can for the people that I hurt. I, I will, you know, make amends in whatever way or not, you know, just forgive myself. And once you really do that, you kind of don't give a fuck anymore. And that's when you start putting, you know, the pocket square and just being yourself and seeing how yourself wants to reveal itself to the world. Right. It's, but, it's, it's feeling, yeah. it's that feeling of natural, like natural, right. I mean, but that's the, that's the key essence of sprezzatura, right? It's not trying, right. it's not trying to be yourself. It's knowing who you are. Exactly. It's like, it's like, it's like effortless, right? Being, being effortless. Is that kind of like the, well, I think that's a key, right? Like when you talk about people who have the best sense of themselves or best fashion sense or any of those things, oftentimes there feels like there's an effortlessness about it. Right. Um, so uh, taking this in a slightly different direction, but very connected, the other thing that I'm seeing you talk a lot about, and this is, I think, probably um, at the core of Goop's brand, is women taking ownership and pride of their own bodies. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And can you talk about why that's important and probably more important now than ever and you know how mm-hmm. that kind of fits into our daily discourse and and you know, where do you see the next kind of frontier on that? Well, I think, you know, honestly, part of the systemic patriarchy that we've all lived under for so long has really convinced women that they're never enough. And I think that's how our power as women has really stayed diminished. We're convinced that you know, we're too fat, we're too thin, we're too this, too that, that our, you know, our sexuality is something gross and and should be hidden or we should be ashamed of. And I'm just fully for women being completely integrated and feeling good about wherever they are and understanding that 
you know, sometimes we go through something in life or we're at a particular stage and we're like, I want to change this particular thing about myself. I don't like that I, you know, have road rage in the car. I don't like that I gained 12 pounds during COVID like I did or whatever the case may be. And then we can do whatever we want to kind of try to fix that for ourselves, but not, not because we're being told by society that, that that's what is expected of us. And, and I think that, you know, as we go through this, um, sexuality plays a really important part because women who are fully integrated in their sexuality are whole, more whole, they're happier. Um, and they're not, you know, carrying that sense of shame around, which is something that we, a lot of us, especially in my generation, were taught to feel shame around. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I just think it's really part of our work at Goop to knock down some of those walls around certain conversations that people didn't have in the past or made them uncomfortable or, you know, talk about it in our Netflix show um, or, you know, show women's genitalia in our Netflix show to show girls all over the world and women all over the world. Like this is what normal women look like. And this is how to get closer to your sexuality, et cetera. So I think it's, it's critical to what we do. So recently I've been thinking about the idea of the new, the new modern dad, right? Like what mm -hmm. is the, what is today's version of, of dad? Right. And, and it's, a a and it's a departure from, you know, the, uh, nuclear family that a lot of people either grew up in or saw on TV. And really it's, you know, dad is now cooking. Dad is now cleaning. Dad is now participating in childcare and not just participating, but they might be leading while mom might be the breadwinner um you know and and obviously it, um you know there's a whole slew of other families that aren't just you know gender normative but i'm just talking about in terms of typical um you know the historic kind of sense of what that is and the one thing that i've been thinking about is the idea of men's health changing as they age whereas it's always been much more acceptable for men to get out of shape the older they get and it's completely <laughs> accepted, right? Like, oh, it's a dad bod, like that's normal, right? Like it's dad jeans. Right. Um, and it's just kind of a part of what it is and there's never been any sense of pressure put on dads to get back in shape later and, and it's just kind of, hey, they're the breadwinner and that that is what it is. And I'm seeing that a shift in that as also I'm seeing a shift in the idea of women as they get older not feeling like everything needs to look as if it was airbrushed right like accepting uh the new shape of your body um you know either post childbirth or accepting the ownership of saying hey i want to do this with my body or hey it's actually okay if i don't want to do anything to like firm up or do whatever right like i'm just going to accept this is how i am i'm naturally curvy i enjoy that that's how i feel best and it's, it's very, um, you know, to me, it's very uh, fascinating the fact that we are going in these kind of like separate directions of men as they go, get older now, I'm seeing in the modern world, 
there is so much more of an emphasis of like, no, you, you still need to keep up. You need to look good. You need to feel good. You need to be healthy. You need to be able to keep up with your kids and keep up with your wife or keep up with your husband or whatever it is. And with women, there's more of an acceptance of saying like, you know what? I don't need to put so much pressure on myself that what I'm going to do is I'm just going to like work myself into an early grave or give myself, you know, um, you know, depression or, or, you know, whatever that is. Can you point to what do you think the equilibrium is going to be like, uh, are we going to get to a point where we overcorrect at some point and maybe the pendulum shifts too far? Like what, what does, what does the world look like in like the perfect pH balance? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it's hard to be prescriptive about that, but I, I will say that I, I am so glad that there is a movement towards women being more accepting of themselves and less punishing towards themselves. Uh, because that's just not good for anybody. And, you know, I'm not a man, but I, I think I've always had an example of the men in my life who have always participated in their health and wellness, you know, and, um, and have always been, you know, my father was, he was of, of course one of the breadwinners. So was my mother. So I had an earlier model of that, but my dad was super hands-on with us and he cooked a bunch of meals in the house and um, he also went to the gym and, and did his thing. So, and I saw a happy guy. Like I think, you know, and my husband now it's just, you know, he takes his parenting role extremely seriously and his work life extremely seriously and his physical health. So I, I just think, you know, from my anecdotal observation, people are happier when they're engaging and making themselves feel better in whatever way that 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 is for them. And I, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if there. I think it's good that we're sort of get the baseline is kind of moving more towards the middle for men and women, and um, and I think. I, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I think there's something respectful about when I see when people who've been married for a long time, who are actively taking care of themselves in whatever way works for them so that they feel, you know, happy and integrated like that. That's only good for a marriage. You know what I mean? Totally. Totally. No, I, I listen, I couldn't agree with you more. I think at the end of the day, the worst thing that I've seen for a relationship is complacency. And yes, I agree with that. You don't, you don't want to put too much pressure on yourself. And I think that there needs to be reasonable expectations, like considering, you know, uh, childbirth or, or work (laughs) schedules or all of those different things and understanding that you, you can't be perfect and you can't take on every single task all in one time. You know, I have a friend who's incredibly successful in, in life and family and, and, and has made a, a great deal of wealth for himself And, you know, the way that he discusses it with me is that, you know, you need to take a look at all the quadrants in your life and, you know, and the quadrants are usually kind of like family, career, community, and personal life. And Mm -hmm. you need to recognize that you're not going to be able to bat a thousand in all of those quadrants at the same time. And you Mm -hmm. need to recognize that there's a different season within your life for, to focus. And usually you're going to be able to focus on two of those quadrants at a time and do them well. 
And just at different times, you, you know, they're going to be prioritized differently. And, and, you know, in your 30s, it's probably, you know, going to be career and family, um, you know, and then in the later part of your life, you, you can focus in more on community and so on and so forth. But, you know, not trying to put too much pressure on yourself to be good at every single thing all the time and just be accepting of the fact that, you know, right now I'm not in the best shape of my life. But I'm not going to allow myself to get so far gone, and and I'll re I'll I'll get back to it, right? Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of change the subject slightly because I want to talk about something that's hugely important to me, and I know that it's very important to you because it's how we actually uh, initiated our bond, and it's something that I've actually known about you for far longer than I've known you, and that's our uh, collective love of restaurants, mm-hmm. and we're in a time right now where restaurants are suffering. Um, dearly, um, you know, a group. I can't believe there hasn't been federal aid for restaurants, but that's a whole other story. Well, so a group uh, that I'm working with called the Independent Restaurant Coalition has been fighting for the past eight months to get the Restaurant Act passed. And so that was something that was, there was a bill written in the House by Congressman Blumenauer and then a bill written in the Senate by Roger Wicker. And so the House bill got wrapped into the HEROES Act, which ultimately was really great because it showed how important it was. We've had 200 co-sponsors in the House, um, but automatically polarized it and made it political. In the Senate, we have over 50 uh, senators co-sponsored. It's super um, bipartisan. And... You know, it has a great deal of support. So it, uh, we still have hope that it's going to happen. Uh, we just, we need stimulus to get passed and we need people to recognize that restaurants are the largest independent um, uh, employer in the country, you know, and restaurants are so important, not only to our economy, but they're important to our everyday life, to our community. They, they activate streets, they activate communities in a way that no other business does. And you've been a restaurant goer and, and not just that, but like, a, a um, I would say like a fervent fan of restaurants, especially independent restaurants for as, you know, as long as I've seen you in the public eye. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your love of restaurants and also talk about why you think that they're so important to the community and why it's important that we save them? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's just nothing better in life than great food. Agreed. People expressing their creativity through food. And food brings people together. It makes people happy. It delights all of the senses. I mean, it's just, there's nothing better than great food. And restaurants, I mean... (laughs) You know, for somebody like me and somebody like you, I, you know, I, restaurants for me were always, I didn't want to necessarily go to the movies. I wanted to go to a restaurant. I didn't want to go to a, you know, like that was, that's my entertainment. That's what I look forward to, you know, back in the day, you know, get the Zagat guide when it came and, you know, your highlighter out in New York city and figure out where you were going to go and when, and what you wanted to try and, and, for me, it was like, I don't know, my main hobby was, was <laughs> eating great food and finding great food and, and bringing friends along to eat and, you know, eating out with my dad and eating out with my family. And, um, and I also think because 
my dad grew up without a lot of money um, and they never really went out to dinner. So when he kind of made it, to him, it was the ultimate luxury to be able to go out to dinner. And every single time we got in the car as a family when I was growing up, he was like brimming with excitement. And, you know, no matter how many times we had gone to the same, you know, Michael's in Santa Monica or 72 Market Street, like he couldn't, he couldn't believe it. And then, you know, talk about the menu and can you believe these oysters? Then, you know, getting my brother and I to, you know, try stuff that he never would have tried as a kid and he had so much pride in it so i really grew up um with this love and reverence for restaurants and good food and i think that it's critical to the way that we socialize and the way that we make discoveries and also the way that we open our horizons and become more understanding of other cultures is a lot of times through the food so I think it's critical, especially the independently owned, you know, smaller restaurants that are really food driven places. I, I think it's absolutely critical. And I commend you, David, for doing so much work on it, really. Well, I mean, this is this is the one thing that I've said to people is, you know, people have never known what chefs and restaurant operators look like yeah. when they yeah. are not working in restaurants and if you've wanted to see what a group of highly motivated highly organized and completely um you know devoid of like personal needs group of people are like hey they will work 18 hours a day seven days a week um you know and and you've now motivated those people to fight for one cause and that's what the IRC has been, you know, and it's been, it's been a truly inspirational experience to be a part of that group and to see how hard everybody works. And, and, and I think that this, you know, and granted, unfortunately, we're stuck in the situation of finding all these silver linings, but there are silver linings to be found. And the one thing I would say I've taken away from this entire experience has been the fact that we've never had a group that represented us as independent restaurants. And now we do. And that is super powerful because the camaraderie, the representation, the, um, you know, the shared experience is, is truly, um, you know, it's, it's something to behold. And, and we're on these calls every single morning together and just the bonds that have been built over the past eight months are tremendous. So I want to end the interview with, with this, because I know that you have eaten, uh, some extraordinary meals with, um, and you are, um, you know, I like to refer to you as like one of the all time great diners. You know, I think, um, you have been one of those people where you sit down and you're just like, uh, I, I don't even want to order. I want to experience. And that's something that I've always loved about uh, feeding you. Uh, you. You've never actually asked me a menu before um, before dining. And and in fact, you've I'm actually never. Idiot. Well, you've never even o- ordered. You, you're just like, you know, show me the way. And to a chef, I think you can ask every chef in the world. And most of them will tell you that that is the best diner you could have, right? Because you now just want to experience the best of what I've got in that moment. And so if you will, can you just share some of your most memorable moments of dining 
if you can remember them like throughout life just like two or three of kind of like in your 20s 30s 40s where you're just like yes this moment stands out to me this restaurant this and, and maybe it's not just a restaurant maybe it's you know s some meal where you were like it stood out to you oh my god so many i'm gonna have to try and um narrow them down a little bit but i so i love eating in new orleans and like like places like Le Petit Grocery, and I yeah. love the food down there. I love Drago's, those barbecued oysters, and <laughs> I love that food. <laughs> My mouth is watering. I know, mine um, is too. I'm thinking about it right now. We need to make a trip. Uh, hey, let's do it. And the first, so the first time I went to New Orleans, my dad went to Tulane. My brother was going to Tulane University. And we made a trip down there, and we ate at uh, Emerald Lagasse's restaurant. It was very, this is like, you know, this is a long time ago. Yeah, this pre, is, so this is before pre -food he network. was, you know, before he was Emeril Lagasse. He wasn't famous. He just had this restaurant that everybody in New Orleans is talking about. And like, you have to go eat at this restaurant. And I remember going there and being so blown away because I had never, you know, I was probably 19 years old. This is a long time ago. And the combinations of flavors, you know, the smoked salmon cheesecake and, the, uh, the jambalaya and the oysters and everything was done. It was like such a um, incredibly stunning entree into that kind of food. Um, and yeah, God, have you ever been to Mosca's that outside of New Orleans? The no, Italian I've never place? been. Tell oh, us. Oh my God. Let's go. I'm serious. Let's I, go do a trip. I'm, I'm ready. You and I need, we, you, you know what? We need our own travel show. We need, I know. I think we do. I'm, I'm ready. Let's make it ourselves. All right. So give me one New York experience and one California experience. Okay. So then um, I would say my New York experience. Um, God, it's so hard to narrow down. I know. You've had, you've had a lot. I remember cooking actually <laughs> down the street from where you used to live. I used to uh, be a cook at Crew. Um, mm. if you remember that restaurant uh, over there on the corner, um, and you know, like it, it was always a special moment when you would come in. <laughs> oh, thanks. That place was amazing. Um, that was really like fancy. Nice. That was a great place. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I'll say because I always, you know, there's so many great cuisines in New York. And I guess like the one, the, I remember the first time I ate at uh, Babo and had like this bucatini, this lobster bucatini with slow cooked tomato sauce and breadcrumbs. And um, I was so blown away. Like there were such bold flavors in that place and, you know, loud music playing and, um, you know, just perfect ingredients. And this is like, again, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was iconic, you know, for, for, it was iconic. for all the controversy around that group, uh, which obviously, um, yeah. you know, doesn't go without saying, uh, yeah. you know, th what they were doing in the, in the sense of food, um, and just the environment, the dining environment, it, it really shook New York. I mean, that group shook New York in a lot of different ways, yeah. uh, both negative and otherwise. That's but true. I think it's undeniable it's to say that the food that they were doing at that time 
That's right. um, was special. And there was a lot of, and, and beyond just the, you know, people who, um, you know, negatively impacted it, there was a lot of people that worked there. And I think that that's people what I forget was going to say, the, the chefs that came through there. Right. Unbelievable. And I think people forget that they forget the fact that like a, a lot of these restaurants, when, when the chef or owner comes under fire, uh, for, you know, necessarily for, for bad, um, behavior and for, you know, bad actions, they forget the fact that there there is a, a, a tremendous amount of people that work there that had nothing to do with that, right? They they mm-hmm. were working, they yeah. they had a job there, and they also were responsible, and and they carry that place on their resume, right? Like, and I think it, it would be unfair to basically say, you know, oh, we can't talk about that restaurant anymore, because you know, because there's a lot of people that worked incredibly hard and and who didn't take part in any negative kind of actions. Um, so one last experience in California. Okay. Um, besides Kefiko. Well, I mean, if, if whatever's on your heart, Gwyneth. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no. I have to tell you, like I, the two things that just popped into my head were the first time I went to Kefiko and the meal that I had at Single Thread. Uh, well, I don't know before all the fires and everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, single thread. Kyle and Katina are two of the most talented and beautiful human beings on the on the planet. Um, you know, I, in a lot of ways, you know, Kyle and I have a history. Um, I, oh, I, really? Yeah. So I was a cook at Joel Robuchon, Um and and when I say a cook, I, I mean that as as a cook, right? I was not management. I, w- I was, you know, very much working my way up. And Kyle mm-hmm. was the head chef of the fat duck in Bray. And we did a collaboration dinner together. Um, you know, uh, Heston Blumenthal and Joel Robichon did a, a, a collaboration dinner together and Kyle and his oh, team wow. came over. And when he walked into the kitchen, he was this rockabilly slick back hair tattooed from head to toe, but like pristine white coat, black pants. And the guy was just so sharp. And I remember looking <laughs> at him saying, I want to be that guy when I grow up. Like that guy is so cool. Spoke Japanese fluently, so on point, just really, really just incredible guy. And then happened to be also one of the nicest humans you ever meet. And then you meet mm-hmm. his wife, Katina, who is um, as, as good of a chef as Kyle is. Katina is in every way that same farmer. Wow. And then you meet their kids and then you hear their story that they traveled with two kids in tow to like work in Hokkaido, Japan and work in England for years and years and years. And you just start to fall more and more and more in love with them. And you understand why mm-hmm. Single Thread is one of the most amazing restaurants in the country. Um, you know, and, you know, to your meal at Que Fico, I think oh that for me was a very special um, moment because, you know, we, we were, I mean, we're still considered a new restaurant. We've only been open a few years. Um, but we were very new at that time and you coming in and basically just saying, you know, cook whatever you want. That was an experience for me because I think it was my first time in my own restaurant that someone of your, you know, platform had come in and then you had posted about it. And that was so meaningful to us because in, in a lot of ways it, it was, more meaningful than winning an award because it's someone who so many more people look at and say, oh, wh- what do they like to eat? Because you're, you're a diner, 
You know, it's not just somebody, it's not a, um, it's not just a, uh, you know, publication, right? A publication is telling you what you should like. It's, it's another human being who people follow and say, oh, I know GP as a diner. And that was really kind of cool to me because I had cooked when, you know, uh, you had been to crew and 11 Madison park and different restaurants like that. And, you know, for you to be dining at my restaurant at that time, and this was before you and I became friends, it was super meaningful to me. So thanks for Aww. throwing that out there. Oh my God. You, I, I will stand by, I, you make the best pizza crust in the world. That includes Naples. That includes anything I've ever tasted in my life. There is your pizza is unrivaled worldwide. Well, that's super meaningful to me. You're, 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 you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, make me start tearing up. Listen, <laughs> GP, I know you got to run. Thank you so much for making Thank time you. for us. Um, and I really hope that you and I can get together soon. Yeah. Um, I'll text you about a pizza date. Let's let's do Are it. Are you going to come, Manny? I'm I'm definitely down. M Manny Manny can be uh, there with the kind of like microphone and kind of we can do a live podcast while we cook pizza together. Okay, absolutely perfect. I'm I'm there. Let me know. <laughs> All right. All right, GP. Take care of yourself. All right. Love you. I'll talk to you soon. The main ingredient. The main ingredient.